19 through there we are. Bingo. Let's, you don't mind if I pray again, do you? Let's, let's pray again. Ask the Lord's blessing. Thank you, Father. Lord, we're just so grateful to you for how you work in our lives. It's just kind of amazing to us, Lord. And we are thankful, truly thankful. And Father, even in the midst of difficulty and hardship, Lord, to be able to come to you and, Lord, to humble ourselves and to seek your favor and wisdom and direction and to be confident, Lord, that you have our interests at heart. It is so amazing to us. We, we're just blessed. Thank you for the family of believers that you've surrounded us with. Father, help us to be those people that you've called us to be, to be an encouragement and a blessing. And, uh, and in, Father, just uh, the revealing of, of your presence in this world to bless and to care for others, Lord. And, Father, to be faithful to you. And, Lord, we need your help in that direction, Lord. We want to be effective. We want to see your hand at work and... We just look forward, Lord, to the day that we will be with you. And we pray for your spirit, Lord, to qualify us to be in your presence. Bless your people, Father. Bless this church, Lord. We pray for Xavier's study tomorrow morning. Anoint him, Lord. Use him. And we thank you, Father, for all those who come here and those who serve. And, Lord, all the many who faithfully serve you. We're just so in your debt, Lord. We're grateful. Watch over us. Give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to pray for our loved ones that don't know you, Lord, that their hearts would be touched. And Father, you would just draw them to the truth. And bless your word, Lord, as we, we look at it here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you know, I was looking at this, this part of the chapter, and um, I don't know how I got to teach this. <laughs> but I'm really grateful. <laughs> it's like pretty amazing stuff. Um, I... It's interesting, I was thinking, I, I looked at it and I thought, gosh, am I really up to be able to do this, to teach this passage of scripture? You know, am I going to do any kind of a reasonable job with this, considering all the stuff that's here? And, and I thought about that for a little while and I thought, gosh, you know, that's probably not the problem. It's probably the sections of scripture that I look at and think, oh yeah, I got this. That that's the problem. <laughs> that's I need to avoid. That's what I need to avoid. Not the uh, the fear of God. John chapter nineteen, ver, uh, chapter twenty. John chapter twenty, verses nineteen through thirty one. Isaiah chapter fifty five, verse eight says, "My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways," says the Lord. Well, okay. How how different are they? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You can't get much more different than that. That would be like infinitely. The heavens go, as far as we know, forever. And so God's thoughts are infinitely different than our thoughts are. To my experience, God almost never does anything in the way that I expect him to. The exception being when I expect him to do something in a way I don't expect, he will then do it in the way that I would have thought had I been expecting to. So it's not the way I thought. Either way, you get it. I remember the day that I prayed to receive Christ back in 1976. I prayed with my stepmom, my cousin, um, my stepbrother. We prayed. I mentioned the resurrection. And I remember thinking, 
as we're praying, they're, you know, I'm repeating words after them. I remember thinking, wow, how do you do that? How do you raise yourself from the dead? Okay, well, 41 years later, I still don't know. I don't know exactly the details of it, how it works. But it's, that's not really the point of contention for me, not at all. A person being raised from the dead is a thing that happens a number of times in the gospel account. However, there is no other account like the resurrection of Jesus. His is unique. Every other person that is raised from the dead in the scripture, and there are a couple of accounts in the Old Testament as well, all of those people died a second time before coming into the presence of the Lord, unlike this resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 6 verse 9 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. To emphasize the uniqueness of the resurrection of Christ. Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. The firstborn, very first, from the dead. No other person to this very day has experienced this type of resurrection from the dead. Now, granted, people who die in the Lord are in the presence of God, but their bodies are still here. Jesus' body is not here. He is the first resurrected into the first resurrection. He's the very first one. It is our sincere hope to experience exactly the same resurrection that Christ has experienced, either in the rapture or in bodily resurrection, as promised in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.52 in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And tonight, we're continuing to look at the very beginning of the effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the gospel account. Uh, continuing on from Pastor Fernando's uh, Bible study last week in the first part of chapter 20, as we, we pick up here at verse 19, Jesus has appeared to one person, Mary Mary Magdalene, just as uh, he instructed her in verses John 7, 20, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father. Go to my brethren, say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And their response is not recorded for us directly. Their response in John and Peter running to the tomb is recorded. But what, other than that, Mark 16.10 tells us, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, and they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her. They did not believe her. They did not believe her. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked into the country and they went and told it to the rest. They did not believe them either. Why? Why did they not just jump up and say, well, then Jesus is alive. That, that's it. Game, set, and match. You know, that's the whole deal. I think it serves us well to take a little bit of time and consider a little bit of what these men and women had been through in the past few days. First of all, the crucifixion. 
Crucifixion is a public mockery of death. Okay? The death of any person is a very uh, personal, very sensitive thing. You have likely never witnessed the death of a person. You may have. You may have witnessed the death of a person. And, and if so, hopefully under the most caring and compassionate circumstances. I doubt that any of you here have ever witnessed in person the execution of an individual. That's kind of a rare thing in our culture. If you see it on a video, you may get a sense of some of what public execution is like. I should like to think that you would have to be a pretty hardened person to not get physically sick at observing an execution. And again, that would be excluding, you know, in the West, what we consider cruel and unusual punishment, which crucifixion is the definition of cruel and unusual punishment. Even things like drawing and quartering a person, where a person is cut into pieces and they're basically tortured to death, or flaying an individual, skinning a person alive. Both of those kinds of execution are things that are designed to be concluded much more quickly than crucifixion. Crucifixion is a much longer process by design than either of those issues. Any normal, mentally sound individually who truly understands what crucifixion is would never wish to see their worst enemy in that situation. The question is, you know, how are we to understand the chief priests and the religious leaders mocking Jesus as he dies? Again, any mentally sound person would never wish this fate upon their enemy. Now, put into that situation, not your worst enemy, but the only person that you have ever known in your life that has never expressed or conceived ill towards any other person, but to help and to care for even strangers and those that are contrary to him. So far as to put himself in physical jeopardy or worse for people he doesn't even know. A person you might be willing to die for or a normal person might think in their mind that they would. As far as we know, the only one of the 11 apostles that were present at the crucifixion was John. Why? Fear? Fear? They couldn't do it. I don't blame them. If you knew that somebody you loved was going to be executed in that way, could you force yourself to be there? Could you do that? Now, the women were there. And that says a lot about the heart of women. They were there for Jesus. Last week, Pastor Fernando mentioned that Peter and John may have been sleeping on Sunday morning. And they may have been when Mary came back to the place where they were staying with news of seeing Jesus. Or that, you know, to tell him that actually that uh, the body was gone. She hadn't yet seen Jesus at that point. I, personally, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think any of these people had slept at all since Thursday. Uh, these people were so traumatized as to be on the verge of being irrational. These people were devastated. 
in every possible way. And, you know, I got to tell you, it's so easy for us just to read through this and not really think about the condition of these people, what they were in. These people were messed up. They didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue what, what, what they were going to do. They were, they were deeply disturbed and messed up. They had cried themselves out. There were no words for them to express what they felt and what they were dealing with because it was deeply personal to each one of them. They, they couldn't believe it. They really couldn't bring themselves to believe it, but it was real. They were done. They had no options. They had no purpose. And into this situation, we introduce the coming forth of the risen Jesus. In verses 19 and 20. In verse 19, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw Jesus. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So, as of chapter 19, we're at Sunday evening. It's the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead early in the morning, just before dawn or right around dawn. It tells us that Mary knew she had spoken with Jesus. She talked to Jesus. And John believed. John chapter 20, verse 8, tells us that he believed. Of course, you've got to realize... It's one thing to believe and a whole different thing to see Jesus and to talk to him as Mary had. Mary had a whole different perspective than these men did. But notice the disciples are hiding for fear of the Jews and the doors are shut. We should probably say something about the followers of Jesus and the temptation to fear. Throughout the church age, over these last 2,000 years, persecution has been a constant companion of the body of Christ. Jesus tells us in, in John 16:33, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul tells us, 1 Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So this is nothing new to us as believers. But notice, I mentioned it as the temptation to fear. Why? Because of what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we need to take that admonition very seriously it is a discipline that is a part of our dying to self to not allow fear to take up space in our thinking and consideration and that doesn't mean to turn a blind eye to imminent danger that would not be turning away from fear that would be foolishness and stupidity we don't want to do that we want to be wise we know the world we live in we want to be reasonable but we don't want fear to guide and direct our conduct. We don't want fear to 
take the wheel of the car and start driving. We need the Spirit of God. We need to avoid fear by allowing God to lead and guide and direct our lives. We need the fear of the Lord. And in some ways, this fear from 2 Timothy 1.7 is really kind of the opposite of the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the world that we need to avoid. Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And we are all subject to this temptation in some way or another. Even if it is just a concern for people, what people would think of us, just as the disciples here have locked the door for the fear of the Jews, hiding themselves inside. And are the Jews pursuing them? Are they going around the neighborhood, knocking down doors, trying to find the rest of Jesus' apostles and disciples? They're not, are they? They're not doing that. These guys are kind of a fear of nothing. You see, the Jewish leaders understand that if you cut the head off the snake, you don't have to worry about the rest of the issue. The problem for them is, of course, they're not dealing with the snake. Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now that sounds really simple. How often you pray for peace, you know, and it's just like grasping at smoke. <laughs> You're just, Lord, please give me peace. And, and you want it so badly, you know, and it's a struggle. I think it's a very difficult thing to begin to comprehend in terms of the effect upon people, these people especially, their understanding, their ability to understand what's going on. It's not a thing that these people want to take hold of in a particular way, and let me I'll explain that to you. These people have been devastated. A part of them died with Jesus. A part, and they, they're dramatically aware of that. A part of them inside died when Jesus died on the cross. And even though they hadn't been at the site of the cross, when people came back and said, you know, it's over, he's dead. They took his body away. Part of, they, I mean, I guarantee you, there was a weight inside of them that they couldn't even put words to. They were completely unable to deal with it. They were just dead inside. The possibility that he is yet alive. That they might lose him again. The possibility that it's a little like if you ride a motorcycle, okay? You ride a motorcycle and people talk to you about falling off a motorcycle. Yeah, everybody rides a motorcycle. Sooner or later, you're going to fall off. And you can joke about it and talk to people about it and talk about falling off a motorcycle. If you fall off a motorcycle... And you get all skinned up and hurt and messed up and broken and every other kind of thing. Then when you talk to somebody about falling off a motorcycle, it's a whole other thing. It's a whole different... I don't want to talk about that. Thank you. Can we talk about something else? It's a very different thing. And you see, that's what they're looking at here. Jesus has died. And for somebody to come and tell them, Hey, Jesus is alive. Don't, don't do that to me. Don't even, I don't even want to go there. I don't want to even think about that in any way. Very serious issue. 
way out of the ordinary or expected or understandable? Or how do you even explain this to somebody? I can't imagine Mary Magdalene running back in there. Hey, guess what, guys? You know, to see their faces. Poor lady. What a thing. And this is going to become a serious obstacle a little bit later in this chapter as we go along. To illustrate the difficult of conceiving and believing that it was so that Jesus was actually alive from the dead. In verse 20, when he said this, he showed them his hands and the wound in his side. He walked himself around the room to show these guys, no, come here, come here, come here, look, you know, because they were like, they were like absolutely beside. Check this out. Look, see. You better believe it took some time for them to get to the place where they realized Jesus is alive. And they all probably considered in the interim, am I losing my mind? Am I losing? Have, pinch yourself, every other thing. And not without cause, they were glad. They were, I mean, I think there's got to be a better word. They were glad. They were like flipping out amazing glad. I've been thinking for a long time approaching this this past week, how to understand the disciples' perspective of the situation. And keep in mind, again, here, these two other disciples, Cleopas and the guy who was with him, had seen Jesus on the way to Emmaus, Mark 16, 12, after that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked into the country. They went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe it either. And then Jesus appeared just directly after that. There is a situation where you don't want to believe your eyes. It does happen. But these people have arrived at that place and they had no choice. Jesus left them no choice but to believe the truth. They were in a corner. They didn't have any choice not to believe that he was alive. How... They came to that realization. What would you think? How am I going to explain this to anyone? How am I going to understand this myself? What does it mean to us as the followers of Jesus? My goodness, if death doesn't work against the followers of Jesus, the truth cannot be effectively opposed. I mean, if they can't kill us, my goodness gracious. And of course... How many of the disciples were sitting in the, in the corner saying, you know, I saw this coming. I knew this was going to work out just like this. Nobody. Nobody in the world. Nobody, nobody except Jesus. He was the only one. You know, it's interesting. They, every once in a while in, in movies about Jesus and stuff, they'll portray Nicodemus or uh, uh, one of the other disciples as people as, quote, you know, quoting Isaiah 53. And, you know, he died for our transgressions and, by, our, by his stripes we are healed. Like they understood what was going on. Wasn't happening. Did not happen. Wasn't anybody there that wasn't, you know, with their mouth open, aghast. Oh God, what are you doing? I'm not getting this at all. Because it, the shock was so powerful. This is not just some theoretical, theological idea going on. This is the reality of the death of this man that you're ready to die for. You're following. You give up everything. This is the one. He's the guy. And here he is being murdered, being beaten to death by the Romans. Not only on a personal level is this 
an inordinately, amazingly powerful thing that these people are just struggling to digest. Not only that, but this is the Messiah we're talking about. To a person, every one of those people knew that he was the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. This is the prophet that is called of God to bring order to the world. This is, stand in that room with 10, 15 people, this is the single most important event in the history of the world. If God coming into the world in Bethlehem is an important event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has got to be a little bit more important than the birth of God as a human being. Alive from the dead. The answer to all the questions. This is Daniel chapter 9. And put an end to sin. That's what it says. Daniel chapter 9. The Messiah comes to put an end to sin. This is the most important event in the history of our world. And I don't know if any of those guys ever thought that at the moment. Our understanding of all that it means to be a human has just changed forever. Obviously, the Sadducees are mistaken about the resurrection. And a few other things, too. The disciples may not have put all that together just yet. It's happening pretty quickly. But you're in a room here with 10, 15 people witnessing the most significant event in all of human history. And that's not all. You're being commissioned by God. Now that he's here, now that he's got your attention, now that he's shown you the wounds in his hands and his side, he's going to specifically commission you to work, to call you to work. Except for those couple of disciples that he wanted just to sit in the pews all the time and not really do anything. Because you guys should just sit there, take it easy, and just listen, and that'll do it. No. There were none of them. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Peace to you. He says it again. Apparently this is a priority. This peace thing is important for us. Especially with these people as peace was about the furthest thing from their situation at the moment that he showed up. They needed to stop and think. Peace. Yes, I, I should have peace. I need to. Peace is a thing that God wants me to have. I've got to remember that. Peace is a thing that God wants me to have. Peace. When Jesus says stuff, it can have that kind of effect to bring about a situation where it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because what he says happens. We are surrounded, folks, by the effects of a world that wants to deny us peace. Everybody deals with the effects of stress in one way or another. Some people wear it on their sleeve. You all have friends like this, or you know people like this, that they're under stress, you know it right now. You know, you walk into the room and they're going to unload on you and tell you right, oh, you, I'm so glad you're here, I have to tell you, you know, and they're going to give you all the laundry list, all the stuff that they're dealing with. Some people... And mostly guys, I think, some people don't even know that they're suffering the effects of stress. How are you doing? I'm just fine. I'm fine. Why's your hair falling out? <laughs> really? You're kidding. Ha! Huh, look at that. <laughs> Who knows? Seriously, 
I actually, I'm one of those people. My hair doesn't fall out. Not much anyway. But, um, but I will see physical effects in my body and realize, wow, I'm under stress. I didn't know that. I didn't know I was under stress. I thought I was fine. But I'm really suffering the effects of stress. Jesus wants us to have peace. John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It sounds very personal, doesn't it? Very personal. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so as I'm reading this, and I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, if I'm not getting peace from God, It's not his fault. It's not something that he has done or not done that I'm not getting this peace that I need to have. He intends for me to have his peace. It's there. I can have it. I just need to follow his directions and sort through this mess that's before me. And I believe that he will take care of the rest. My situation is not a surprise to God. He's not shocked that I'm in the circumstance that I am. He knew this was coming. He has made a provision for me to have peace that transcends the world. What do we call peace that passes all understanding? That's his target for me. That's what I need. And it's certainly something that I can have. Now, obviously his work is always opposed here in verse 21, he says that we are sent as Christ was sent. Meaning, among other things, that we are operating on enemy territory just as Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Christ is the express image of the Father. Purpose being for those who see Christ to know the Father. In the same way, uh, when people saw Jesus, they saw the characteristics, the personality, the activity, the action, the uh, substance of the Father in the life of Jesus. And so, in the same way, we are to conduct ourselves as Christ did. First John 2.6 says, He who says he abides in him, abides in Christ, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We're supposed to walk just like Jesus walked to the end that those who see us may wind up knowing Christ. That's God's purpose. In the second half of verse 21, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. And it's kind of important here. As the Father sent me, also I also send. The word sent and send in the last half of verse 21, are two different words in the Greek language. And there's an important distinction between them. Okay? The Father's sending of Christ is the Greek word apostello. Okay? Meaning to delegate, other than the fact that it always presupposes a setting apart, it represents the idea of authority that is delegated. The Father delegated Christ with authority, sent him with authority. Christ's sending of the apostles here is the word pempo, P-E-M-P-O in English. Uh, designating not the delegation of authority, 
but dispatch under authority. Okay? So Christ took God's authority. Jesus gives us his authority. So it's diff- it is different. We don't have the same authority Jesus had, but we have the delegated authority that came from him. He's handing his authority over to us, which is important. And in 22, we recognize the authorities Jesus. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, it's hard for me to imagine God, the creator of the universe, would go through all the motions here, instructing his followers to receive the Holy Spirit, breathing on them in what is kind of um, a reenactment of the birth of Adam when God breathed the Spirit into him in, in Genesis. And he became a living being. And he's, he's in some ways reenacting that for these 12 guys, 11 guys. And they're his followers for him to go through this entire thing and for it not to have taken place. And let me tell you, there are a whole bunch of people out there that said, well, this is just symbolic. They didn't really get the Holy Spirit right here. Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then he breathes on them, and they didn't get it. It was just for show. I have a hard time with that. That's, you know, John fourteen seventeen. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and he dwells with you. And will be in you. Notice that he will be. This is the night before he died. And will be in you. Okay. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came upon them. Not in them. Not in them. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says. Having believed. You are sealed. With the Holy Spirit of promise. That's in you. It's in your physical body. And so I want to suggest to you that what we're looking at here in John 20, 22 is Jesus initiating the Holy Spirit inside of these men who believed in him. Reality here, it's too easy to speak from ignorance on on issues such as these, but hard for me to imagine another alternative. In verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. We know all too well that no one has the authority to forgive sins except God alone. Matthew 2, 7. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right. Exactly. Nobody. Only God can forgive sins. That is the key. The authority. And remember, the authority is not ours. It's Christ. He's handing us His authority. As the servants of Christ, we see people that repent from dead works. And embrace the truth of Christ. And certainly, we can tell them, you are forgiven. Can't, you know, what, what do I, am I saved? I don't know. Ask the Lord, see what he says. No, that's not, that's not, that's not right. It's not scriptural. It's not a proper perspective. You've turned from dead works. You've acknowledged the truth of Christ. You believe Jesus died for your sins on the cross. You believe he rose from the dead. You are forgiven. I can tell you absolutely, categorically, on the sound foundation of Scripture, you are forgiven. You're born again. And at the same time, if we observe those that reject the truth and contradict it with their lives, your sins are with you. You're walking in sin. 
We're fruit inspectors. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, What have I to do with judging those who are outside? Meaning those who are outside the church. Do you not judge those who are inside? But if those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. God commissions his people. He calls them. He equips them. Gives them the Holy Spirit. Gives them direction. And sends them forth. Now, it's interesting about this. is God is so smart, you guys. He doesn't just do this one time. He does it all, all throughout this time before he ascends to be with the Father in the beginning of the end of Luke or beginning of the book of Acts. He does this over and over and over. The Great Commission, he does the same thing. Go forth and preach the gospel to every creature over and over again. And then he does it with every single person. As you become a believer in Christ and you read the scripture and the scripture speaks to you and you realize, wow, there's a calling on my, he, he commissions you. He sends you out. He equips you. He fills you. He directs you step by step. And he's constantly in the business of commissioning and directing and guiding, using, filling, anointing his people day by day. Verses 24 and 25, we have the confusion of Thomas. Now, Thomas, called the twin, Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples said to him, we've seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of the nail and put my finger into the print of the nail and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is not there when Jesus meets the, the eleven. Certainly not by accident. It's not an accident. There are no accidents. The other disciples tried to tell him he wasn't going to have it. No stinking way. Why? Again, these people had a lot invested in the death of Jesus, folks. It had, you know, had a stepfather one time whose his father died when he was a young boy. And he told me about it a few times through the years. And he always described it to me. He said it was like a truck ran over my head when his father died. You know, And I think that's a great illustration for what these people dealt with. And it was like they had been run over by a truck. Was not was not a thing to be taken lightly for them. Uh, they had a lot invested. They had been impacted. Uh, their lives in ways that I, I think mo- a lot of us may not even be able to to understand, notice when Mary told them they didn't believe her, again, Mark 16, 11, Thomas has the same problem. He's in an extreme situation. He has been battered over the head with the death of Jesus. He knows that that's true. He knows that Jesus died. He has no doubt about that. He knows that that's true. And he's not likely to relinquish that truth unless he has no other option. Unless he's put in a position, let me tell you, the other 11 in that room, unless they were in a position where they had no other option, they weren't going to let go of it either. People could have lined up at the door all day long to tell them, we saw Jesus, he's alive. He said to tell you, hello. They wouldn't have had it. They would not have had it. And that is what God does in our lives. He leaves us with no other option. He leaves us with nowhere else to go. In John chapter 6, verse 68, Simon Peter answers the Lord. Jesus asked them, are you guys going to leave too? 
And Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. They had no other option. There's nowhere else for us to go. Thomas is a sincere man. And, it, you know, unfortunately, he's got this tag, Doubting Thomas, which is, I think, unfortunate. Because I think he was at least as faithful as all the rest of these guys. Maybe a little more. As Jesus picked him out to go through this difficulty. He's a sincere man. He's not going the path of least resistance. It's not a, a no-brainer to him. He's, he's not going to say, okay, well, whatever. You know, whatever you say, I'm on board. No. He believes what he believes. He's not going to turn loose of it for anything. He wasn't going to be swayed by the words of men. It's an admirable, admirable quality in any person. He knew that Jesus was dead. It wasn't a question mark in his mind. As to what was up with these other guys, he couldn't say. But he knew of a certainty that Jesus was dead. And his statement in verse, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I don't imagine that he said this. I don't know, of course, but I don't imagine he said this the very first time they tried to convince him that Jesus was, Jesus is alive. Oh yeah, sure. No, no, really. He's really alive. And I imagine they tried to get him to understand. And eventually he said, unless I put my finger in that, and, and that's eventually where he got to. Had to create a very difficult situation for the next eight days. It was, he was pretty much out there by himself. He was the only one. And I, no telling what he thought was up with these other guys. Walking with Jesus in a situation of life where we will, from time to time, have the distinct impression that we are serving God out there on our own. With no one to help. All by ourselves. We're not, of course. But sometimes we see it that way. And it seems like we are all alone. And the Lord uses that as an influence in our maturing for a time. And then verses 26 through 29, Jesus confirms to Thomas the truth. In verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus calls Thomas's bluff. Which shows us what? Jesus is not afraid to show up for a particular purpose. Peace to you. Here again, his greeting of choice. That he hears and understands everything we say when he is apparently not around. But he is. He hears every single word. You know, I can imagine Thomas, oh, you heard that then, did you? Okay. I was just... I... I, I, I. I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, I'm, come in, come in, what do you think of that? Okay. <laughs> uh, wow. 
And also it shows us that he's looking out for our benefit. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas's response to this is, you know, basically put a fork in him, he's done. Jesus has just put him in the position where he has no other option but to believe. And not only that, Thomas calls Jesus God clearly and directly. Very important. The, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Brooklyn, New York, the Jehovah's Witnesses, have some difficulty with this issue, and they deal with it in a variety of ways. Uh, they've gone to some great lengths to twist it beyond all recognition. Um, it's hard to get around the fact that Thomas calls Jesus Christ God, Almighty, God God the Savior. And actually, the Jehovah's Witnesses are in the habit of reprinting their books and changing things regularly. So I don't know if this is still true. But they used to have a purple interlinear version of the New World Translation with Greek helps and interlinear Greek and English on the pages. And you could go through it and read the references in it and it would give you language references to identify when the scripture was referring to Jehovah God, specifically. And if you took their references and how they delineated it out to identify where the scripture is referring to Jehovah's God, and you took and applied it to the Greek, as they have it in their interlinear, in John chapter 20, you would find that Thomas is referring to Jehovah God, which is, again, horribly awkward for them because they don't believe that Jesus is Yahweh. They believe that he's a God. You know, uh, the son of God, a God. He's not really God. Um, Pretty fascinating stuff, though. God uses Thomas to confirm the deity of Christ in a powerful way. One of the things, a couple of different things you'll hear from the Jehovah's Witnesses are that he's saying, my Lord to Jesus. Then he's saying, my God. (laughs) You know, he's just amazed. So he was just an exclamation. My God. Which, of course, is profanity. This is profanity. This is sin. To, to say the name of Jehovah God as an exclamation. Okay? Um, or the other would be, you know, my Lord and oh my God. This is, or some other way uh, that he did it. And if, in fact, Thomas was doing that, if he was using the name of God as an exclamation, and Jesus were a good teacher, as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that he is, he should rebuke Thomas. He said, don't be talking like that, Thomas. Don't call me God. You know you know that's wrong. But what does Jesus say to him in verse 29? Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen and believed, blessed, you are blessed. He blesses him. You've seen, you've believed. What did he believe? He believed Jesus was God. He believed that Jesus was God, the creator. And he's blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so this is no punishment to Thomas. On the contrary, the Lord is using the circumstances to further the gospel, pronouncing a blessing on those who have not seen and yet believed. And who would that be? Who are the ones? Yeah, that's right. Those who have not seen Jesus in person. Crazy to think that Jesus can just show up. And I mean, of course, this is before he ascended. I realize that. But Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul after the ascension. Do you ever wonder why Jesus doesn't show up in your bedroom sometime? Talk to you? You know, it would be interesting. It might freak me out really badly. But 
But, it, you know, I wonder about that. But the Lord knows, you know, I don't. First Peter 1 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How cool is that? At which point the narrative kind of changes gears here. And the Holy Spirit exhorts us concerning the account of Jesus' life and the details and the purpose of the account that we have here in verses 30 and 31. Considered purpose of the gospel. Verse 30 reads, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The things that Jesus said and did, you know, we never assume that we have anything like a comprehensive account we have bits and pieces, folks, in the Gospels. We've got four Gospels. We've got the book of Acts. We're counting from other books of the Scripture, looking back. We have bits and pieces from at least four, but more likely, many different perspectives. Luke was never with Christ during that time. Mark may have been present as a young man at some times and actually was perhaps very close to Simon Peter who gave him his account. We don't know that for sure. But even John and Matthew made specific references to circumstances they were not present at. And so in those situations, they're taking the account of other witnesses and incorporating them into their gospel. Many different perspectives. All four authors include details they weren't present for. And were therefore dependent upon what? Upon or who, dependent upon the Holy Spirit for those details. And somebody asked me this past week, who wrote the book of Joshua? To which I gave the answer that I would look into it, basically. Well, Joshua, I thought, but I'll look into it. Now, Joshua, like many other Old and New Testament books, has in it no direct claim of authorship. This is the book of Joshua. I wrote it, and anybody wants to make a thing out, call me up and we'll take, you know. No, it's not there. And even if it did have a direct claim of authorship from the person of Joshua, the academic community has little or no respect for such academic claims. Oh, they just wrote this in there. They wanted everybody to think that he did it. In the case of Joshua, as his death is included in the last chapter, it, it makes it problematic to his claim of authorship over at least that section. We would agree that it would be added by a later editor or compiler. I have no doubt that there may well be any number of people that have contributed something to any given book of the scripture throughout the ages, a word here or there or whatever, as they are copying and transcribing and handing down faithfully. But the point being two things, okay? Two things, important things. First of all, higher literary criticism 
and the adherence of what's called the documentary hypotheses. Those two things, higher literary criticism and the documentary hypothesis. Are, these people are academics. They're people who operate in the circles of academia on seminaries and Bible colleges. And they are studying the history of manuscript evidence and what it's all about. They need to make claims against the traditional authorship in order to shine a hopeful light of probability on their intellectual conclusions. Okay? Does that make sense? They need for people to doubt that Joshua wrote the book of Joshua so that they can share their ideas about the priestly elements and the prophetic elements of people who got together and put certain parts of the... Do they know? They don't know. They don't have any idea who the person was who put pen to paper and actually not. Their opinion about what may have happened will sound a whole lot smarter from a human perspective. But the reality is, no, they don't know that Joshua did not write the book of Joshua. So they labor endlessly over facts and details that are interesting. They're, they're interesting. You'll find them in commentaries all the time, these facts and details. They're very interesting, and sometimes they're even useful. As you're teaching the Bible, you look at that, oh, I didn't know that, and it's good, and you can put it in a Bible study, and it's not destructive in any way to the purpose of the Lord's bringing up. However, their facts are of no use to dislodge the firm foundation of biblical inspiration. Amen. Here's the point, okay? Second point, this, this is the point of the fact. Those disciplines were developed to dissuade people that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. We want, to, we want to confuse the issue of biblical inerrancy and biblical infallibility. We want you to get all thinking about these other ideas of, well, where do we get this from? Where did, how do we know? And look how it says this here. And maybe it came from these people who are more motivated to write in this way. You know, the, the followers of Ezra or whoever. They don't like the idea that it doesn't fit comfortably in their humanistic, focused worldview. Secondly, and much simpler, scripture is not the, if the Scripture is not the product of the Holy Spirit, why are we going to study it to begin with? If the Bible, the Gospel of John, the book of Joshua, if the whole Bible is not the product of God's Holy Spirit, why are we going to study it to begin with? It's only more of the same twisted information from more broken people. And 2 Timothy 3.16 is a lie where it says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. Don't waste your time. I didn't believe the Bible. And then I did. In John chapter 7, verse 17, it says, Anyone who wants to do his will shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is God or whether I speak on my own authority. Remember that verse. It's a promise. Jesus says, if you want to know where, this, where these words are coming from, seek to do what it says, and you will know. You can know, but you have to be fully engaged. In other words, you have to be willing to do His will. And if you will put yourself in that position, God will give you no other option but to believe. See, that's what happened to me. 
Just like Thomas and the other ten guys. God put them in a position where they had no other option but to believe. And I sat down with my Bible. I read through the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And I had no other option. There was no other option. He says in verse 31, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in His name. God does things, folks, that are amazing. Every single day. Amazing and beautiful. Some days more than others. I am I'm most amazed at what I am doing here when the trajectory of my life was almost certainly should have landed me in a de- very different place than this. A place of regret and pain and death and destruction. That's where my life should have ended. And I imagine that in some ways, at least, your story is very much the same as mine. But God had a different plan. God had a different plan for you. And these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life, a different kind of life, a life in His name. And that's what we want. We want to see the Lord's hand fulfill these issues. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for being here with us today, Lord, for your faithfulness toward us, and Lord, to breathe life into us, to breathe life into the Scripture, to strengthen our hearts, Lord, in your truth. Father, we pray for your Spirit, Lord, to fill us, Lord, to engage us in the work that you've called us to, to cause us, Lord, beyond our own abilities, Lord, to be faithful to you, Lord, to fulfill, to build up the body of Christ, to encourage others. Lord, to bring people to faith in Christ. Lord, give us that boldness that comes from your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Lord. Even as you use these men, as they sat in amazement and considered all that your life meant to them, help us, Lord, to take in that truth and have that filling of your Spirit, that boldness, that Resolve to stand against the lies of the world and to walk with you in that victory you've intended. We love you. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.